0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Now I know you're a busy person, so whilst I've got your attention, why don't you share this episode with one friend so they can be inspired too. On tonight's episode, we're going deep into hiring product managers with a guest who wrote a book about it. We'll investigate some of the problems hiring for technical skills, how leaders need support to become effective, how copy and pasted job descriptions are destructive, and why we need diversity in all its forms on our teams. We'll also be introduced to imaginary failing product leader, Pete, and try to avoid scrolling through all of our guests' LinkedIn contacts to identify him. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Kate Leto former State Fair t-shirt seller turned product manager and now product management consultant and author. Kate set up shop in the UK where she's learning to love cups of tea, but originally from Iowa, home to Captain Kirk, Slipknot, and Fields and Fields of Corn. Now she's aiming to make sure we've got a rich harvest of product managers by publishing a book, Hiring Product Managers, Using Product EQ to Go Beyond Culture and Skills. Hi Kate, how are you tonight?
1: I'm great, thank you. Thanks for that awesome introduction.
0: I'll see if I can get the Slipknot music uh, <laughs> licensed for the for the intro. <laughs>
1: oh, oh, I hope so.
0: <laughs> so, I've read the book and enjoyed it, and as we said before this call, cool. enjoyed how, how also how short it was. It's quite good to have a kind of a punchy, to the point book, very accessible. But how's the book gone down? Like, what kind of feedback are you been getting so far?
1: I've been getting really good feedback. Thank you. Um, it is. It's the book itself was published by Sense and Respond Press. And they focus on trying to create really digestible books. So the kind of books that you could have read, for example, when you were commuting to work and back.
0: Back in those days.
1: Back in those days. So that meant keeping word count under a certain level. And that meant like really refining the story I was trying to tell and the points I wanted to get across to make it comprehensive, but compact at the same time. So it was a different kind of challenge in writing it. But I've gotten good feedback. The book itself is told as a, it's kind of a fictional case study based on a fictionalized bank that I call New Start Bank. And you meet a cast of characters at the bank. And I tell my story through them. But of course, it's based on many, many different client experiences that I've had over the years. And it it was fun to think of kind of everything I've experienced and gone through and kind of bring it together in this story and try to help the reader learn as we go along and take something away that's very pragmatic with them.
0: Yeah. So was the book much longer to start with? Did you just find that the words flowed out of you and you just ended up with like 500 pages and you had to then chop that down?
1: I think I rewrote that book probably about 10 times. I probably have 10 times the length, actually, <laughs> in my computer. And my boyfriend knew what I was working on when I was out in my my garden office writing away, and he kept asking me how long is the book going to be, and I would tell him, and he's like, "And you're still writing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where, where's all of this going?" But no, it's it was a good, it was an interesting process. I'd never written a book before, and I always wanted to give it a go. So this was a really good way to to try it out and experience it, and actually have something to show for it that people have been giving me good feedback on and taking things away from and actually using at their offices, well, their virtual offices these days. So it's been, it's been a really cool experience.
0: I'm just trying to think of the author or the, the, whoever it was who said the, the classic line, if I'd have had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter, which sounds uh, very apt.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, that says it.
0: But you're not just an author. You're also, as we said, a product consultant and an advisor. So, so what does that? But what do you do for your day job?
1: Oh goodness! So my day job, I work with organizations on within the product organization, but also beyond. So the last few years, I've kind of evolved my focus on on product management into a, like a, a broader transformation and org design practice as well. So the work that I do could be with like a specific product organization, or it could be in different areas of a company now as well. Sometimes I'll work with a culture team, or sometimes I work with finance, or sometimes I work with HR. It's quite varied. But I guess the one thing that they all have in common is they want to make some kind of change. You know, for a product organization, that could mean they maybe want to do something really big, like introduce a product practice where there just hasn't been product management before, or it could mean helping to change how their teams are working, or helping to change, you know, the the way they're even thinking about product management. But there's always some element of change involved. And I guess that's where the hiring came in, is because when you're working with organizations of all these different shapes and sizes, and they want to have some kind of change and bring a change in the way they're working, their knee-jerk reaction is to hire, right? We'll just go out and we'll hire some new people with a new kind of skill or a different experience or a fresh perspective, or we'll add some layers into our organization so, I've been involved in a lot of hiring over the last the last decade of my time being a consultant, and that's kind of that's the impetus for the book really is working with organizations who say they want to change and their first step is to go copy and paste a job description for somebody else and <laughs> and start hiring.
0: yeah, there's a lot to unpack there and obviously some of these themes are in your in your book as well so we'll we'll come back to those in a minute, but cool. I'm really curious as to. How you decided to get started? So you were working as product leader at Moo back in I think 2010 2011. Yep, and uh, you then decide, yeah, it's time to go and strike out on my own and go and do this thing. So what made you make that change?
1: Yeah, it was a big change. So I actually I came to Moo in 2008, and before that I was with Yahoo, first in Sunnyvale and then in London, which is how I met folks that ended up at Moo as well. And I was with Moo for about three years as their very first head of product. And so that was a very, that was a great experience. But I kind of got to, I got to a point where I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know exactly what that was. And everybody in my world at that time was starting their own business. They were doing their own startup, right? So I, Left Moo, and I'm like, I'm going to go do my own startup. And I was actually thinking of doing something that was akin to a Moo for bags, for like commuting bags, for your, you know, something to put your laptop in. So that was kind of my vision. But I thought, if I'm going to leave and do this, I need something to help me pay the bills while I figure it out. So I started doing consulting to pay the bills a couple of days a week. And I started working with a, a VC firm at the time who had some portfolio companies that needed to understand what is product management and how do you hire product managers and how do you actually build an organization, build a startup that has product people and a product focus. So I started doing that and I found that really interesting. So I kind of put my own startup ideas aside and just kept doing consulting. And it's that was 10 years ago now. And it's just gone from there.
0: No, it's good though. You're you're your own product. Though that's the that's the long and short of it. You have become your own product, which is which is good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes good, sometimes questionable. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool.
0: <laughs> so yeah, let's go back to the the book then and talk about some of the themes inside. So you mentioned just now that, of course, it's a fictional story. I guess kind of amalgamated from, as you say, various different experiences across your career. The central protagonist or maybe even antagonist is a is a poor old guy called pete (laughs) so pete for for my listeners benefit is a hotshot product leader who came into an organization to great fanfare everyone thought he was going to be amazing and and set the world on fire but he pretty much set the company on fire (laughs) the product was in pieces around him all of his all of his team wanted to leave and everyone was throwing their hands up in despair so whilst you're obviously saying that the examples And the story is very much an amalgamation. Was there an actual person who was basically Pete in any of those companies? Or is he an exaggeration of of some of the things that you've seen?
1: He is definitely a a combination. But there was one person I worked with a few years ago at a financial services corporation that was very strong, kind of Pete caliber. (laughs) And so a lot of what I wrote about with Pete came from him, but not everything. There are bits and pieces of of different different people I've worked with throughout the years but Pete represents you you described him very well, you know kind of comes in as like he's our safe pair of hands, but he's also going to push us along. He's going to help us set up a product practice within this new star bank setting, and he came in and just went nowhere fast, so it was a good. It was a good opportunity for Pete to learn that basically what got him so far got him to where he was so far in his career as a director of product with this great reputation and everything for doing things well and getting projects out the door and on budget and on scope and everything wasn't going to get him where he needed to go next
0: yeah, so that's really interesting and you've identified obviously a, a core problem with Pete was it was that he was very good at what we would call in product management terms at least hard skills, although it's debatable as to whether it'd actually be considered hard skills by people who have even harder skills but you know in product management terms we're talking about hard skills so sort of frameworks and kind of getting the work done and turning the handle as I like to put it now you've worked with a bunch of companies in your time what's your feeling for the proportion of of peeps to to non peeps out there are peeps in the majority and, and actually represent the bulk of, of product leaders do you think?
1: I think Pete's are in the majority, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to tell this story in the book. An underlying theme in the book is really that what I I call them technical skills, what you were referring to as hard skills. So things like knowing our frameworks and knowing um, how to do design sprints or knowing how to do discovery process, knowing kind of the methodology behind everything that we do. And they, I think as overall, as a kind of community of practice, that's what we really focus on. And we do that to kind of this point that we don't focus at all or have conversations around what I call human skills, which are often referred to as soft skills. But in terms of human skills, things like having the self-awareness to actually be a good leader, having the influence skills to bring like really challenging stakeholders along with us on our projects and our decisions that we're making, having resilience, having adaptability, all of these things are so core to product management, yet from my experience, I feel like they aren't something that we talk about nearly as much as our technical skills or our frameworks, but they're just as essential. So that's, that's my core kind of thesis in the book is that we need to reframe our narrative really on what is product management and what makes a good product manager and what we should hire for in product management is somebody that's balanced. You know, I'm not saying forget the technical skills. Forget all your frameworks, throw those out the window. I'm saying we need to actually look for a balance between the two.
0: Yeah, and that's fair enough. I think that there's a lot of talk about balance in product management. I think even I wrote a Medium article about it at one point, about how I think for me it was like you can't over-index, for example, on engineering background if you've got one or UX if you've got one or commercial acumen if, if that's where you've come from because you need to basically be a bit of everything. And this just feels like that, but just a different lens. You're still advocating for balance, but just balancing kind of a different cross section somehow.
1: Yeah, it's it's talking about kind of it's talking about skills like components of human skills that we just don't talk about that much, I think. So what I've been trying to do is just like create a safe space to have this conversation around things like, you know, influence and self-awareness and resilience and All of these great strengths that we we can have and we do have, but we just don't focus on them. We don't cultivate them. So that's where I was coming from. And a lot of that is for personal reasons. You know, even going to a in my career, getting to a certain place, and I was so focused on these technical sides of product management that I didn't focus on or even think about some of these human skills. So it's it was a learning process. So in the book, I had a a chance to finally share that and actually bring it to life in, in a different way.
0: And I don't want to ruin the book for people because I want them to go and you know, <laughs> buy it and read it, but within the book you then detail some strategies and some approaches a for the imaginary pete to to go and you know fix that stuff and become better himself, but also how companies and organizations can maybe avoid the problem in the first place so on on the the strategies to improve i mean again in all of your experience, have you ever been in a situation where you've sat there with a pete or a A proto Pete or Peter or someone else, and just thought after a time, this person just hasn't got it and they need to move on. And how long do you leave it before you make that judgment?
1: Yeah, it's hard. That's such a hard call. I know. Usually, I'm hoping that, and what I've always tried to do and encourage is that you have conversations along the way, right? So if a decision like that ever is made, then it's not a surprise right? Because there's been, there's been open and transparent and radical candor and all of that other stuff happening as you go along. So usually, though, I'd say like within a six month time span, if you don't see the type of behavior change that you've talked about together, or the improvement in performance, whatever it might be that you're trying to measure and focus and grow, then I'd say there's probably something that's not quite working. And you know, sometimes I think a lot of actually being a good leader is having some having a, a positive outlook. That's another human skill. You know, and that doesn't mean glossing over everything and making it all sunshine and roses. It also means being able to have conversations like that and actually help somebody realize that this might be a good move for them to actually um look in a different direction or that their strengths might be better in a different area. So whenever I've had those conversations you know usually number one it's not a surprise it's not coming out of nowhere you've you've given a lot of support and advice along the way but a lot of times also it's kind of the other person actually understands where it's coming from and they come to the realization themselves even so they're challenging but i'd say you know it's a 6 month time span to focus on and usually within that 6 months one of one of two of the the parties will kind of figure out that This is something that we want to continue on or not.
0: Yeah, I guess that person isn't having that much fun themselves by six months in if it's all falling apart anyway, right? So Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I
0: guess, as you say, it's about coming to that shared understanding. Yeah. But one recurring theme in discussions I've had with people, both personally and for the podcast, is the kind of variability in what product management really means. And by association, I guess what product leadership is, because, of course, product leaders are, are managing product managers. And obviously in some companies the cliche is, and it's also very true that the, the product managers are really project managers. In many companies where maybe it's a little more sales led, they're maybe operating in a feature factory. And you've got these people again maybe not having too much fun, slogging their way through the these jobs. And then they get promoted potentially because they're maybe the best product manager in that team or something like that. Mm. They probably don't get any coaching or, or any training to do that. They just kind of become the Leader by default right now that's obviously a really depressing story, but do you feel that that explains a lot of these issues, or, or is there some other angle that we're, that we're really missing here or that I'm really missing here
1: no i think I think you're right, you know I think and it's not just within product management. I don't believe we are educated you know as a population <laughs> on things like human skills for the most part. you know, I think we get to a point in our lives where we realize how important they are. And we go seek help in one way or another, be it from a book or, you know, from a coach or a therapist or a friend or a family member or whatever it might be, or a a mentor or a boss even. But we're not given that education. I was reading an article earlier today about the importance in teaching children about emotional intelligence in school. You know, and that's just that's still something that that's not common, (laughs) you know. So I don't think it's surprising at all that we're often finding ourselves being managed by or led by somebody who's just who hasn't really focused on these skills, and that's what they are. These are all product skills, right? They're all skills of our profession. It's just a different way of of defining them and thinking of in a more kind of holistic way. So. Yeah, I, the, the scenario that you just described is completely normal. I think that happens all the time. I remember when I first started working years and years ago and I realized that my new manager was somebody who had just been promoted because, you know, she had done her third year in the same role and it was time for a promotion that I really <laughs> wasn't going to learn much from her, unfortunately, and that kind of leadership perspective. And that's always a bit of a, a heartbreaker, or a challenge for, you know, for the the person the team member, so I think it's extremely common. I think it's something that we're we're slowly changing because there's a lot of talk these days about leadership and leadership and product management and what does that mean and there's a lot of talk there's so much more talk about coaching now that I'm almost kind of tired of of thinking myself as a coach because we all just everybody's a coach <laughs> everybody does coaching there's five million different types of coaching but you know, that's, that's cool. That's great. I'm glad to see we're swinging in that direction.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I've also seen some, some crazy job descriptions out there. And you touch on this a little bit as well. And you mentioned it earlier, kind of the idea that maybe even people are just copying and pasting bits of other job descriptions and sticking them into one because frankly, they probably can't be bothered to do the work to actually do it themselves. And then Obviously, you've got the role canvas that you that you mentioned in the book as well as a way to collaboratively come up with a shared understanding of what that role should be and, and actually frame it properly. But that's obviously, again, not really the normal way that happens. And, and the former, just sticking stuff together, still massively outweighs that. Do you think this is down to companies not really knowing what they want? Or do you think it's just because they're rushing it or because they're just expecting HR to handle it for them?
1: I think it's probably a combination of everything. You know, from, from what I've seen, the, the concept of companies just cutting and pasting job descriptions is so real. You know, I used to do that when I, when I worked at, <laughs> you know, Moo and at other organizations. When I got headcount, I was like, I was always so excited. It was like Christmas Day came early, right? I could go, I could hire somebody who could do the stuff that I don't want to do anymore and I could move on and do other things. And I'd go and look at competitors' websites or Apple and Google and Amazon, some of the best practices, and I'd cut and paste stuff. And I read an article not long ago that said, I'm not alone there. Like 80% of hiring managers, and this isn't just product, but it's a wider sample. 80% of hiring managers say the job description is really important. About 50% of them cut and paste those job descriptions uh, together. So it th- this happens. And I think, number one, it is because we're not quite sure what we're looking for. So we go get inspiration from whether what other people are looking for. We don't, you know, thinking about the words to use to describe what we're looking for is a challenge, you know, when we do get some ideas. So it's just, it is just easier to cut and paste. And three, we are trying to move really quickly. You know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of speed and hiring because you don't want candidates to linger too long you don't want to lose them it's a competitive space it's a competitive marketplace and i get that but i think what we're doing is we're just kind of letting the problem grow right and it's becoming like a super well, a super spreading event even because we're cutting and pasting something we didn't think about somebody else is cutting and pasting what we didn't think about and it just compounds and when it with hr involved you know hr often doesn't have the exposure to product management, so really isn't as informed on what what we're looking for, you know, so they will just go, perhaps just go to, they'll take whatever we give them from the product side and say, like, I just need this, you know, this is my cut and paste job description, we just we're looking for this, or maybe they'll go do the same, you know, they'll just look around and cut and paste. So there's not there's not thought, there's not consideration around what actually is this Role. What do we need? What's the purpose of this role? And there's not alignment on it. It's just, I'm going to go cut and paste it, you know, when I've got 20 minutes, and then we're going to go with that. So which the role canvas that you mentioned, tries to break that behavior and disrupt it by asking teams to answer four questions on this canvas. And they all seem like very simple questions like, what's the purpose of the role? (laughs) You know, not the job title, but what's the purpose? And what are the accountabilities? And then what are the human and the technical skills that are essential to meeting those accountabilities and the purpose? But it actually, it does this great thing of getting teams talking about what they need. And I see a lot of teams when they're doing it, they struggle on that first question around purpose. Like that holds that That stops people in their tracks when they're asked around the purpose of a role versus just the job title. So it creates a lot of good conversations that I'm happy for teams to be having before they bring people in for interviews versus halfway through.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, alongside that, there's also then the concept and something again that you talk about in the book around making sure that we we're hiring diverse teams as well to make sure that we're not just sitting there with a team of, frankly, identical white guys. Now, a lot of that I put down personally, and, and I've had discussions with other people on this around this whole concept of cultural fit and mm. the founders interviewing everyone to make sure that they're going to fit in and making sure we have cultural fit interviews to make sure that, that, that we like these people and that we, f- we feel they could fit into the team. Now, I personally, and, and I'm sure you're nodding, so I'm assuming that you as well think that's possibly a bit the wrong way around and that, actually, all that does do is is lead you to hire people that look much the same as you. Mm-hmm. How can we build that into the hiring process to make sure that, that we do get people we can work with, but that that doesn't mean that we just get people that are all the same?
1: Yeah, I think it's a big problem. and It's interesting because my thinking on this topic has really evolved over the last few years, even as I've been more focused more on hiring and teams and and building really high performing teams and seeing the relationship with diversity and, you know, diversity in background, but also diversity in in thinking. And when I was writing the book, I found this great statement from the VP of, I've forgotten his title, VP um, of HR at Adobe. And he talked about teams, when he looked at them, he wanted to make sure that they were kind of, well, he thought about them as kind of like pieces in a puzzle, right? And he wanted to make sure that what he was seeing wasn't kind of stacks of the same piece on just right on top of each other, you know, everybody looking the same and sounding the same. And from the same background, he wanted to see diversity, he wanted it more to be kind of like these pieces were making up a puzzle, right? They were all slotting together to create a, a comprehensive yet diverse team that complemented each other. So instead of culture fit, they called it cul- culture complement. Other organizations call it culture ad or culture contributions. So I've really evolved my thinking from, yes, we have to have somebody that fits. And you know, when you meet somebody in the interview, you know, that they just fit. And a lot of people talk about that magic moment. I'd like to go past that into thinking about how can we find culture complements? How can we find people that are really going to push our culture to grow and add value and not just replicate the same piece?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And and I think it's really important, and I, I've seen it described before, is you, you, you're looking to make sure that they're not just going to pull your team to pieces versus that they're not just exactly the same as everyone else on the team because ultimately that just leads to everyone thinking much the same thing, and that's obviously never going to be good. And there's plenty of people that say that even if you're not going to be like the the humanitarian of the year looking after this for personal reasons or for, for you know, for the, the good of mankind reasons that it, it's more, even the business results argument still stacks up. And there's been plenty of research that says that companies that have these diverse teams perform much better as well. So yeah, it, it feels like there's a lot of work to do, but that hopefully we can nudge people in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It's going to be a hard habit to break. You know, I think it's going to be one of those behaviors that is going to, is going to take a long time to move away from. And to get comfortable with hiring for more inclusivity, be it background experience, ways of thinking, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah. So speaking of ways of thinking, and uh, obviously in the book, you're talking a lot about human skills, soft skills, kind of EQ and things like that. One of the things that I was interested to see what your opinion of and how it fits with that is there's been a lot of talk, obviously, these days of diversity and inclusion and some really important discussions about, for example, women in product, minorities in product. But there's also another angle on that, which is, of course, neurodiversity as well. And one of the things I was curious about were your thoughts on how, for example, an autistic candidate would fit into this EQ soft skill world when all of the signals that they give off to a neurotypical person would make them think that, that that none of that is going on?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Because when we're talking about a lot of EQ and a lot of the human skills that I mentioned in the book, for those that have a challenging way of expressing those skills, you know, how do you bring them into an interview process? And all, I have to admit, I haven't been involved in um, neuro- neurodiversity hiring. I would love to be involved in a program around that, but I haven't yet. From what I've seen and the people I've talked to about it, it 's about changing the interview process to make it make it more comfortable for people you know with autism or ADHD or anxiety disorders, uh, dyslexia, you know any of these different kind of range of different ways of of thinking and of approaching an interview process so from what i've seen, and the folks that I've talked to have been involved in these programs, it means restructuring you know your interview process from top to bottom and setting it up in a way where you're actually giving people with these different ways of thinking a chance to actually come in and show their work show how they think show how they interact in a way that makes them comfortable so for example i've been reading like at microsoft they have a 4 day program instead of a process where there's a workshop setting you know where they can come in and and some some folks will work in small group sessions some will work more with one-on-one one-on-one with hiring managers they'll have different projects for them to work on different projects they'll share back there's even i think there was a an exercise where they build use legos to build a new a new design and new app and shared that back so it's it's finding these different processes and different ways of interacting to just make everybody more comfortable and find a way that they can that everybody, inclusivity and thought, inclusivity um, and background can come together and actually bring these different minds together in a way that can actually contribute to an amazing product, um, an amazingly diverse product. So there's ways of doing it. And I think we're still kind of, we're still discovering them, but it takes a lot of trial and error from what I've seen as well.
0: Do you think that's a case then maybe of removing some of the stigma around basically some of these conditions and making it more comfortable for people to even say that they have them in advance, so that they can then have that taken care of in the interview process. Because, of course, the the only way to do what you've just described, if someone hasn't said, for example, that they're on the autistic spectrum, is to do that for everyone, which may have other problems. So do you feel that there's obviously still a stigma around a lot of these conditions? Yeah. Do you feel that that is another thing to challenge or another thing to tackle there?
1: Oh, Absolutely. You know, no matter what, you know, in the book, I talk about human skills and in this area, we're talking about neurodiversity. It's just, it's creating an environment where everybody can do their best work, right? So with neurodiversity, it is, I think, setting up, and I, I've seen, organ- or I've read about organizations and talked to people who are involved in organizations where they just have a completely different process from beginning to end. And they do this because they know that everyone has something wonderful to contribute to their product, there's some you know super smart people that are just not getting involved because they can't, they don't communicate the same way as everybody else, or they find challenges in um, in different scenarios and situations. But from what I've heard and from what I've talked to folks about, when you do create this different kind of setup, from yeah, maybe it's not emailing in your CV, maybe there's a different process involved from the b- very beginning. Maybe it's more word of, word of mouth. Maybe it's more networking. I'm not quite sure. But it's just, it's a different angle. And the proof, you know, and going through th- these steps and creating something that's unique just means that you are going to have a more diverse product and service. And that I think is, is kind of what everybody's looking for and wanting. It's just finding different ways for people to contribute, to really be their best selves at work and bring their skills and do, do their best
0: work. And there's obviously a lot of, Again, we've mentioned it already, there's a lot of discussion going on around diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and there's clearly still quite a lot of work to do if you speak to, well, just about anyone. But do you, from what you've seen, think that things are getting any better? I mean, they're, they're not great, but but are they moving in the right direction? Or is there still quite a lot of work to do to, to even push them in the right direction?
1: Yeah, as well, I guess I could answer that from the women in product perspective. And I, I do see more women in product, which is great. But, you know, there are times when I'm just still surprised and I'm just still taken, taken aback at scenarios and you know, we still have a lot of work to do. There's, there's still a lot of challenges out there. And I say that as a white woman. There's still a lot of men in the boardrooms and there's still quite often that I'm sitting at a, a table, a conference room table, well, back when we used to do that, now sitting on a Zoom call <laughs> where I'll be the only woman on the call. So yes, we've made, we've made improvements definitely, but there's still a lot of, a lot of room to grow and, you know, that applies to, you know, gender, but also as, as you mentioned, ethnic diversity as well, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges there. So as, as long as we, I'm hoping if we have our eye on the prize and we're all very aware of, of the changes we want to make, that we'll continue to work towards it.
0: Well, maybe that'll be book two uh, when you when you're ready for that. You can you can solve that problem for us as well. Yeah. Uh, Is there going to be a book two? Do you think, or do you have you kind of scratched the itch when it comes to writing?
1: No, I definitely want to do more. I really it was a challenging, frustrating process, but I really liked it. (laughs) So I'm hoping to do another one and maybe take this year to to think more about and investigate and play with what that might be.
0: I will keep my eyes out in, uh, in, in the bookshelves, virtual or otherwise, and, and see when it's coming out. Where can uh, people catch up with you if they want to chat to you about any of the stuff that is mentioned in your book or just catch up in general?
1: Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Kate K Lido. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. I have a website, which is com, And of course, you can find the book on Amazon or you know, Apple Books or whatever is your favorite digital bookstore these days.
0: That's great. I'll make sure that's put in the show notes and hopefully we can get some people to come and find out more. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So thanks very much for spending the time. Obviously, wish you all the best for the book and hope everyone goes out and buys it. Hopefully you and I can stay in touch. But for now, thanks for spending the time.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode met your hiring criteria and is through to the next round. If it did, why not pop over to one nightinproduct.com, That's night with a K to meet some other candidates, or go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe, and share with your friends and colleagues via the social media of your choice. I'll be back soon, but for now, thank you, and good night.